Race to zero! I'm Paul Dickinson and welcome to this special episode of Outrage and Optimism where we are very excited to present the second instalment of our What the Hail miniseries by welcoming back Thomas Hale, Associate Professor in Global Public Policy at Oxford University. Thomas joined us back in March of this year to discuss the launch of a report, Taking Stock, a global assessment of net zero targets. That report shone a spotlight on the credibility of a wave of government and business net zero commitments. And he's now back with a significant update, the launch of a publicly available net zero tracker. But rather than explain the net zero tracker myself, let's get right to it. Here is my conversation with Tom about this exciting new launch. Welcome back to the podcast, Tom. Now, the Net Zero Tracker officially launched today. We are. It's coming out on Wednesday, excitingly. Congratulations. And what were the main aims behind the launch of this tracker? The Net Zero Tracker is aiming to record the, not just the quantity, but also the quality of net zero targets from cities, from businesses, from regions, and from countries, and putting it all together in an easy-to-access and publicly available source. Tell me, why is it important that you're launching this publicly-facing net zero tracker now, especially at a time when the number of net zero commitments from businesses and governments seem to have exploded in the public arena. So net zero has really gone from sort of this obscure scientific concept to a central organizing principle for addressing climate change in a remarkably short period of time. But the question we now really have is how do we make it robust? Because it's become so popular so quickly that it's kind of outpaced the systems and the processes we have for making sure it has real science-based meaning. And so we needed a tracker like this to be able to help us understand not just where net zero targets are being made, but how rigorous and robust they actually are. So Tom, can you clarify for our listeners the relationship between net zero targets and the need to limit global temperatures to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius rise? So in 2015, countries agreed in the Paris Agreement to try to limit temperatures to changing no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius in this century. What that means is they need to bring their total level of emissions down to a net balance between sources and sinks, that is to net zero, by the middle of the century, indeed by 2050 at the very latest globally. And that means that every single piece of the world economy, every country, every city, every business, needs to follow a trajectory that's aligned with that global goal. And that's why net zero targets are so important for achieving this goal set out in the Paris Agreement of limiting temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius. That definition is really helpful. Um, so has, has there been any attempt to regulate the voluntary net zero commitment so far? So the meaning of net zero is extremely clear in global climate science, but it's still being operationalized in the actual practice of countries, of companies, of cities, 
of other kinds of actors. And that means there's still quite a lot to figure out in terms of how a robust system for ensuring alignment to net zero actually looks. But we're seeing a lot of targets now coming out that are voluntary in nature. So businesses, for example, are making voluntary pledges. But also increasingly, we're seeing new kinds of systems that are asserting um, and trying to qualify and accredit those kinds of voluntary pledges. So things like the Science-Based Targets Initiative, things like the Climate Pledge, things like the Cities Race to Zero campaign for cities. Many of these are also part of the UN's Race to Zero campaign, which is obviously a big feature of outrage and optimism. And so that's trying to outline some minimum criteria that all of these pledges need to make, need to meet rather, in order to show that they're credible and serious. And that's what the tracker is going to be showing. It's going to be showing which of these net zero targets exist and to what extent they have these criteria for success. So it seems net zero targets are not all created equal. Can you explain, Tom, the different types of net zero targets we're seeing being publicly announced by companies? Happily. So, for example, some net zero targets are just in a press release or in a statement that a leader makes at a conference. Some are actually enshrined in national laws. Some are enshrined in corporate strategies. Some are enshrined in their management KPIs that CEOs have to meet for their boards. We need to show that kind of, of difference. Also, some net zero targets, for example, don't cover all of an entity's emissions. They only cover maybe the direct operational emissions in, say, a company's offices or in its business travel. They don't actually measure the emissions embodied in its products and services. So that's a huge another area as well. So even though it's still quite a lot to figure out in terms of how we get to net zero and how we operationalize it in practice, this is rapidly shifting. And we have a pretty clear set of ideas now for what makes the net zero target better and what makes it okay. not really up to the bar yet. And that's the interesting transition we're going through now. Tom, it looks like you've been working very hard because you've evaluated over 4,000 net zero commitments to begin with from all these different sectors, from national commitments to oil and gas companies, financial institutions, and so on. And they've all got a wide range of framings for their net zero commitments, as you've pointed out. So will the net zero tracker enable us to see who the leaders are in each of those sectors? Yes. Yeah, so if you look at the whole global picture, we can already begin to see, you know, maybe not necessarily a ranking of one, two, three, four, five, but definitely those that are toward the top of the pack and those that are lagging behind. So let's look, for example, at the G20 countries, which are meeting at the end of this week, right before COP26 in Glasgow. So, you know, remarkably now, 17 of the 20 members have some kind of commitment for net zero. That's a lot more than we had at this time last year. So only three G20 countries are not yet part of this uh, pack in there. You know, that might even change before this episode comes on the air. So this is an exciting kind of moment to watch. But of those 17 with a commitment, only five of those are actually enshrined in law at this stage. So those are Canada, the UK, Germany, France, and the European Union. Um, and so others need to step up and bring their pledges into line with these kinds of more vigorous and firm commitments. And that's the, the next step. But zooming out a little bit and looking at the whole global picture, we see these sort of two truths at the same time. And I know on Outrage and Optimism, as the name implies, there's really an important need to look at both the positive and also what we need, still need to do. So on the positive side, the share of the world economy that's covered by these net zero pledges, looking only at country commitments for, for the moment, has really grown a lot. It's now basically 80% of global GDP measured in purchasing power parity terms. That's up from 68% last year. It's over three quarters of global emissions. That's up from 60% last year. So it's a big, big step forward. But if you drill down to see which of those countries have pledges that are actually at the top tier of robustness, it's something more like 
10% of global GDP, 5% of global emissions. Um, so there's been progress there as well. You know, the number of countries that have had these commitments in law has doubled in the, in the last year. So that's important progress. But we still have a ways to go. So we've got the outrage that there's not more uh, firm net zero commitments. That's right. We've also got the optimism that this is spreading really quickly and has entirely really reframed the debate away from what are we going to do? Should we even bother about this whole decarbonization thing overall to actually not a question of debating that, but instead debating how quickly are we going to get there, which is a much more productive place to be. Absolutely. And I think there is a wide understanding of how important decisive action actually is, especially as we head into COP26, with the hope that countries will step up their ambition with urgency demanded by the climate crisis. So will the net zero tracker enable the public to actually see how these commitments and actions stack up against the scientific goal of halving emissions by 2030, which is necessary in order to meet net zero by 2050? So a lot of the world has sort of thought, mm, well, net zero 2050, that sounds like a long time from now. We can maybe not worry about this until, say, 2045 or so, and then come back and see what the what the deal is. But of course, that's not right. If you're going to do something as radically ambitious as decarbonize the entire world economy in a few short decades, then you really had to start. Yesterday would have been best, but today is the second best time to start. So urgent action this decade is absolutely critical for the credibility of these net zero targets. Um, and we're going to be seeing an increasing number of reports, for example, from UNEP, the UNEP GAP report this week, um, outlining exactly where national NDCs are in terms of short-term action and how that aligns or, in too many cases, doesn't align to where countries should be given their net zero commitments. And we see that also with firms. So in companies, we all know they need to be setting short-term targets that are commensurate to the contributions their sector needs to make to a halving of global emissions in this decade. Initiatives like the Science-Based Targets Initiative are helping to define what that means. But this net zero tracker will also be helping to show and shine a spotlight on those companies that aren't even at that stage yet. So um, again, we here see some progress here, and we also see some work that's still needed. Last year when we did this, we saw one in five of all of the largest companies in the world had a net zero target. So, you know, a good chunk, but not necessarily where we wanted to be. This year, that's now down to one in three. So we are making significant progress on getting companies to align to where they need to go. However, of those uh, company targets, there's still quite a few that need to get more robust. Maybe only about one in 10 of them are at the level of where we'd like them to go in terms of aligning to the short-term need. So again, a little bit of outrage that it's not higher, but a little bit of optimism that the rate of change is actually quite impressive. Will the net zero tracker give us like a scorecard that shows how we're racing to the bottom of the emissions trajectory? I mean, will it allow us to kind of compare across different industries of different types? Absolutely. So the net zero tracker will give us a tool to see which of these net zero targets have which specific criteria. For example, does this target have an interim goal in the short term that's going to be helping them get onto the right trajectory? Does it have an accountability mechanism? Does it have coverage of all the entities' emissions? Does it provide clarity on the use of offsets or not use of offsets, whatever the case may be? These are the kinds of questions that we need to be asking for every net zero target. And we're going to be providing all the information we can about how these different entities stack up. So just to take some examples, if you look at the global sort of large oil companies, actually a number of them now do have net zero targets, even some ones that um, were particularly, uh, shall we say, resistant to climate policy for, for a long time. But if you look into the details, you'll see very few of those actually cover all of their so-called scope three emissions, all of the emissions that are produced by the products they make, i.e. fossil fuels. So this is a really important area where different companies can be 
separated from each other. Same same for nations. There's a lot of ones that are, have, like I said, targets in law or targets in press releases. These are important differences to drill down into as well. Fundamentally, Tom, what does the net tracker do to help the credibility of net zero? I mean, how important is this tracker to net zero? I think it's particularly important because if we look at the broader public debate now around net zero, and we've seen a real effort by some of these sectors, some of the companies in particular, who are less excited about climate action to, in some ways, co-opt net zero, right? To say, we're, we're going net zero, it's going to be there at the end of the century or the middle of the century, don't worry, we're on, we're on the right track. And some people in the climate community have sort of seen that and said, well, actually, this means that maybe net zero isn't that useful a thing. If, you know, Saudi Arabia or Russia or Exxon can all say they're going net zero, and actually Exxon hasn't said that, so there's a key difference there. But if Saudi Arabia and Russia can say it, you know, does that mean it's really worthless? And I think actually it means that we've won an important victory in terms of shifting the debate toward um, away from not doing anything to kind of debate about what we're going, we are going to do. But it means we absolutely need a tracker like this one to be able to separate those targets that are robust and from those that aren't. Because the question isn't so much, you know, is net zero or not the right thing to go? And the science is extremely clear on that. Net zero is the only way to stop climate change. So we need to go for it. Yeah. But we need to put a lot of scrutiny and a lot of clarity around how different entities are, are aligning toward that science or not. Okay, great. Now, we do understand, thank you, what the net zero tracker is. Um, can you just tell us who are the organizations behind it? Are they independent? Uh, be great to hear some of that story. So the Net Zero Tracker is aiming to be a gold standard for independent verification of the credibility of Net Zero targets. It's a project of four different organizations, us at Oxford University, also the Energy Climate Intelligence Unit, um, ECIU, the New Climate Institute, and also the data-driven EnviroLab at, at the University of North Carolina. So it's four independent organizations that have come together with funding from the European Climate Foundation um, in order to try to create this global benchmark standard. Um, and it's really trying to draw on a mix of two different ways of gathering information. One is using some sophisticated AI and machine learning to scan the web to see where we new information emerges about a different target, uh, sorry, from a different actor, and then putting that information to a global team of volunteers who are trained to be able to sort through that information and put it into our standardized categories. And so it's really kind of a, a marriage of citizen science and uh, data science to try to give a product that's based on publicly available information. And so it's basically entirely traceable. So in the Net Zero Tracker, you won't find you know, um, too much you know, opinion or evaluation by us, it'll be rather an aggregation of information in a way that's going to be useful for a whole different range of stakeholders. So if you have any thoughts about what we've missed or maybe mischaracterized, get in touch because this is all about get, empowering everyone really to be able to track net zero for their city, for the companies they work for or care about, um, and for the countries they live in. So this is a, a kind of tool I hope we can all use to try to wrap our heads around this very complicated but super important topic. Absolutely. Super complex. Tom, you mentioned that some campaigners have been worried about the use of net zero as a potential kind of greenwashing exercise and have been quite critical of it when, you know, within the climate movement. Have you been in dialogue with those groups and what sort of responses have you had to the tracker? So, you know, net zero has become operationalized far too quickly in some ways. I mean, obviously not too quickly, not quickly from a climate science perspective, but it's very much in the early days of figuring out what a hard an incredible system for verifying net zero looks like. And so the pressure we see from civil society groups to really get it right is, I think, exactly the right kind of intervention in this space. We need to have 
we need to have scrutiny. We need to have a real pressure on all actors sitting at zero targets to make sure they're doing it in the right way. So we've been working closely with that community. We've been sharing our thoughts on what we can gather to try uh, information we can gather to try to inform um, what people, will, the kind of judgments people will be drawing around net zero targets. Um, and so, you know, this is a, a tool, a resource for entities themselves, for companies that are buying their products, for citizens that are buying their products, for citizens that are voting in elections, for investors, for anyone who wants to check whether a particular part of the world is on track or not on track, this is a tool you can use to help hold them to account. So I hope people will take it up with that spirit. So we've called this series, What the Hail? Um, and big shout out to Clay for this excellent naming protocol. Now, because of your tremendous ability to bust through the climate jargon and bring clarity to our listeners on what these often quoted, sometimes misunderstood terms really mean in the real world. Can uh, we have a quick lightning round of definitions, if we may, starting with net zero? So net zero means radically reducing emissions immediately to try to get them down to as little as possible by the middle of the century, and then neutralizing any that might remain, any emissions that might remain, with permanent removals in order to achieve a balance between sources and sinks and therefore prevent further climate change. And what about zero emissions? Zero emissions refers to just getting to 100% zero emissions. So no, nothing coming out of your company, your city, your country into the atmosphere. And what about zero carbon? Zero carbon means that carbon dioxide, the main but not the only greenhouse gas, has been brought to zero. And this is the most important one because we know we need to get to zero carbon first before we tackle the other greenhouse gases. Um, it's just the biggest piece of the puzzle. Okay, what about climate neutral? So climate neutral is used in a number of different ways, but I think the most useful definition is to say that the amount of emissions coming out of the entity every year are matched by anything they're taking out of the atmosphere in response. Um, but it's not necessarily mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that those things that are going in and those that are coming out are exactly like for like in terms of the time scale in which they persist in the atmosphere. So it might mean, for example, you're digging up fossil carbon and using it to, say, drive a car, um, and then planting some trees to try to suck out some of that, that uh, carbon in order to balance it out. But if those trees are going to take 25 years to grow, and that fossil carbon has been there for in the ground for, say, a few thousand years, then it's not really exactly like for like. So that's a one where we need a bit more clarity. And what about the meaning of climate positive? So I really like the term climate positive. I think this is an excellent goal for organizations, especially companies to strive for. And it means that their overall operations are not just net zero, but net beneficial to the climate. So they might be taking out more from the atmosphere than they're putting in. That means they're not just trying to not be a problem, but actually actively becoming part of the, of the solution. And so I think that's an excellent goal for companies in particular to strive for. Great. So... Net zero is often used interchangeably with GHG or greenhouse gas neutral and the term carbon neutral. So can you help our listeners work out what the hell is the difference between them? So a lot of different actors might use terms like net zero or carbon neutral or greenhouse gas neutral or these things in different and slightly interchangeable ways. And also, also it differs a lot by language. So the term net zero is very commonly used in English, but it's less common, say, in Spanish or in French or in, um, indeed in Chinese, they refer to these kinds of things as net zero. So there's a little bit of different usage across different contexts um, in different popular speech. 
But I think there's a useful scientific distinction to be drawn between net zero, which I think must include this idea of like-for-like like balancing between sources and sinks, so that what you're taking out of the atmosphere is really matching anything you're putting in, so that there's no further contribution to climate change. I think climate neutral or carbon neutral or greenhouse gas neutrality is a little bit looser. It maybe implies that even though the absolute flows in any given year, are what's coming in and what's going out are, are the same, it doesn't really necessarily imply that the overall atmospheric impact of those things are the same because it doesn't have the same sort of time scale component to it. And in other words, the time scale that carbon lasts that you're putting in the atmosphere might be longer than the time scale of the trees you might be planting to, to try to remove it. So it's a small, quite technical nuance, but a really important one, because I think we it, it really is at the heart of why um, the discussions in the net zero have been so controversial around offsetting, where it's sort of not enough to kind of just get to a static state of not you know net zero, uh, sorry, of carbon neutrality with um, balances between sources and sinks if you're not also really driving down emissions to the point where you can permanently neutralize any remainder. It's that permanent neutralization that makes net credible uh, or not credible. Just to clarify, Tom, can a business say they are net zero without cutting their emissions? So I think it's really important to distinguish the time frame that we're talking about when we talk about net zero. Net zero must mean radically reducing emissions in the short term, and then only at the point where they're quite small, figuring out how to permanently neutralize a small bit that remain. And so if you're a company or a country or a city or anything that's trying to get onto a net zero pathway, your course over the next 5, 10, 15 years is pretty clear. It has to be radical emissions cuts. There's just no other way to get there. And so if you're not doing radical emissions cuts, you're probably not doing net zero right. Um, it doesn't mean you shouldn't also be investing in nature, investing in these restorative solutions, investing in the long-term technologies that might help us to permanently neutralize things once we get to the state of, of uh, residual emissions a few decades from now. But that's not your first point of call. And we call this in the, in the technical literature sometimes the mitigation hierarchy, meaning that mitigate, mitigate, mitigate first, and only then come to the question of how to net. So, Tom, while we're throwing terms at you here in our lightning round, I'm going to jump in here because I encountered a new term that I'm wondering if you could maybe help me out with. So my one-year-old son, he drinks milk, and I was staring into the fridge the other day and saw on the milk carton that the milk company is saying that they will be going carbon positive by 2025. I had never seen carbon positive before, but I just kind of assumed I knew what it meant. And so later in the evening, my wife and I were out on a date, and I said, hey, I saw on the milk carton you bought that the milk company is going carbon positive by 2025. Did you see that? And she said, carbon positive, don't they mean carbon negative? And uh, I didn't know. <laughs> so help me, you know, carbon positive. Uh, what do they mean by that? It's a great question. So I think we've seen with this uh, Wild West operationalization of net zero, a real kind of um, confusion between what the science is actually asking us to do and then what looks good when you put it on a milk carton, what, what looks good from a, a marketing perspective. So I have to expe expect that they mean to be carbon negative, meaning they're taking out more carbon than they're putting into the world. Um, but probably they thought mm, negative doesn't really sound like something we should put on something we want people to buy. So let's call it carbon right. positive instead. Right. I think climate positive is a bit more helpful there, right? Because it's saying 
what you're doing is helping the climate. If you're trying to make carbon positive, that's not really the direction we should be going in. So um, maybe that's an opportunity for them to, to upgrade their, uh, their terminology. But um, this is exactly why we need standards, why we need to really think about moving this from a kind of voluntary space to a regulatory space, um, because you know, we need clarity on all of these things so that people buying milk or people thinking about how the world is going to evolve over the next three decades can make clear choices. <laughs> well, it sounds like I need to send them an email and say, please listen to this episode with Tom Hale. He'll clearly describe to you why you need to change what you're saying on your milk <laughs> cartons. Thank you very much. Th uh, thanks for indulging me. Well, thank you. And I, I really hope uh, it's helpful. That is, is super helpful. Yeah. Now, Tom. Can you please let our listeners know where they can find the Net Zero Tracker online? The Net Zero Tracker can be found at zerotracker.net. See what we did there. Okay, so the Net Zero Tracker can be found at zerotracker.net. Super cool, super confusing. Let's just like break this out because it's important. We believe in the internet. www.zerotracker.net. Tom, really, really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you so much on behalf of me, Clay, all our listeners. Um, so good to get better and better understanding because through understanding, we can fix this thing. Cheers, Tom. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. So, race to zero. What the hell? Hey everyone, this is Clay at the end of the show. We have another episode coming tomorrow regarding China and COP26. So make sure that you hit subscribe and don't miss it. Thank you so much to Tom Hale for bringing the knowledge to us this week. If, you know, like me, you need help to decode the mysterious claims of marketeers, or, and more importantly, if you're a business or organization setting net zero targets, and you want to be able to benchmark yourselves reliably against science and your peers, the Net Zero Tracker is a radically transparent tool created and run by a collaboration of scientists and volunteers. It is essential for multi-stakeholders, consumers, investors, business partners, and their critics to push for more action. And you know, more action is what's needed. So links in the show notes to the Net Zero Tracker, zerotracker.net. Thank you to Tom Hale. Okay, a couple things to mention regarding net zero for further reading this week. I posted the UNEP gap report that Tom mentioned in our conversation. And I also posted a tweet from the director of Carbon Brief, Leo Hickman. He posted that the Oxford English Dictionary added some climate words to the, well, the Oxford English Dictionary, including net zero. So, you know topical. Check it out. And the last thing I want to share with you is in the show notes, I've posted a visualization from the New York Times of global emissions. It shows where we were pre-Paris versus where we currently are versus what the current pledges are versus what is actually necessary for 1.5. It kind of graphs them all together. Now, I really hesitate to recommend anything that has a paywall, so apologies for that. Maybe there's like a free trial if you don't have the New York Times. But if you can access it, it is really well laid out. I'll look for another one that's free to share. So lots for you to check out before COP26. See you tomorrow for another episode.